This is Customer Experience Leaders, a show where we reveal how great brands delight their customers. On the show, we chat to the unsung heroes of customer experience. These people are often working behind the scenes, sometimes with, but often without customer experience in their job title. Each episode will give you helpful aha moments and leave you with practical takeaways. I'm your host, Michael Momsen. I'm absolutely thrilled to have Emma as our first guest. In this show, Emma shares her fascinating stories and approach to how Lush ended up becoming the 2018 Innovative Customer Experience Retailer of the Year. And they did this in a way that focuses on simplicity. They did it without any expensive consultants or any fancy complicated software. So this is a great show if you want to hear how they practically built a customer experience strategy, which is both easy to understand and implement to get results. Emma, thanks so much for being on the show. Really looking forward to exploring your journey. And um, before preparing for this, I actually went into a Lush store with my two daughters and oh my God, it was so hard to get them out of there. So maybe tell us a little bit about the Lush experience. So Lush is an international um, cosmetics retailer and basically we sell cosmetics and we're best known for our bath bombs. <laughs> um, so your two daughters went in there, they were bound to be um, bouncing around the bath bomb section. And basically one of the key cornerstones of our brand is um, we've always been against animal testing um, and we really invest in the quality of our ingredients and probably a little unknown fact about us is that all of the cosmetics that we make are handmade. There's no manufacturing equipment whatsoever. So when you come into our um, manufacturing facilities, they look more like commercial kitchens rather than big manufacturing centres. Yeah, so I guess we like to think of ourselves as a bit of a kooky, innovative brand (laughs) in a way. And we like to disrupt the um, cosmetics industry in particular and do things completely differently. That's exciting. And the handmade um, side of things, is that done like in one market or is it done locally in each market? How's that, how's that done behind the scenes? Pretty much we have nine manufacturing centres all around the world um, and we have one in Australia um, which serves um, the New Zealand market and some of the Asian markets. But then there's one in Germany, one in the UK, one in Japan. So, um, yeah, there's lots of them all over the place making amazing Lush products. That's great. So what I'd love to um, jump into is your your sort of role into customer experience manager. And like a lot of people, everyone comes from a different path, right? Like you came from uh, sort of customer care and sort of service support orientated. Um, other, sometimes people come from a marketing angle. Sometimes people come from different like angles. Maybe tell a little bit about your journey and how you sort of landed the, uh, the customer experience manager job. <laughs> I think my journey is really interesting because I think even since I was very young, I've always worked in sort of customer facing roles, started off in hospo like most people do. And I always found myself just having a real um, affinity for being able to work with customers and people and understand their needs. And I think what I found over the years is that Um, you know, I worked in financial industry in a call center, which was my very first job. And, but I found this very, um, I guess, natural ability to talk to customers, understand the issues that were facing them and the problems. 
And I think I sort of would get frustrated because I think on the front line, you understand the problems, what's happening um, and what's going on, but you don't always have the ability to fix it. So you are constantly running up against that wall of hearing frustrations and never actually seeing the, you know, fixes to what seems like the obvious problems. And I think in terms of how I came about being the customer experience manager at Lush, I entered in as a customer care manager. It was my first leadership role. And I found myself in a place where I think it was the first time I was able to really advocate for the customer and make changes. And and what I saw happen there was sort of a really natural progression where I started to work out that there was this land of sort of customer experience and what I was doing very naturally, which was advocating for customers and changing business processes, actually sort of had a whole industry around it, which I never knew existed. And so I think for me, it was a very natural progression and it's what I've been doing since I started. But I think for Lush, which is known for being a very service-orientated brand, had actually taken that for granted. And so I think I guess it was that thing of not knowing the difference between what customer service is and customer experience. And so I saw a gap that they had and I guess in in at least so I look after Australia and New Zealand and I I went after it and advocated to be their very first customer experience manager. Oh, right. So you you went, hey, you need to create this role, guys. I was like, you need to create it because, you you know, in, in retail, especially in Australia at the moment, it's so difficult. And I guess like in the retail industry, we see this very sales focused landscape, which often comes at the cost of the customer experience. I saw this gap for it and I and I basically said, we're going to get left behind if we don't create a space for it and if we don't give someone the ownership to help everyone else in the business get there. And so I guess my role came about by really just naturally advocating it for the business and really seeing the opportunity to have that role so that we could truly um, create a proper space for it. And we should just touch on like how you think about yeah, service versus experience. I mean, like it's sort of <laughs> the definitions have been explored to death with, you know, professionals and what have you. But I think you sort of, you uncovered an, an important point, which is, you know, obviously great service being on the front line and being empathetic, but then seeing the processes that are broken and then not being able to do it. Like what were, what were some of those common themes that made you go, ah, I want to go back and like fix stuff behind the scenes? There's so many. <laughs> um, I think a lot of it is, and it probably comes back to just my initial when I, you know, worked in financial services. And what I saw is um, that a lot of the contacts that we got through to that contact center would be people just had such a poor understanding or, you know, a really poor understanding of financial literacy. And the process was broken up front. Just, you know, for example, getting something like a credit card is very, very difficult. And I received something like 12 weeks training to understand how a credit card operates to help a customer with it. So when you think like an agent receives 12 weeks training just to understand how to explain a credit card to you know, their customers. So what hope do the customers have? So I think what I saw through there is just people, you know, they had great financial literacy up the top, but they didn't understand how that directly correlated to the customer. And I remember one of the things that I did was I had a customer over the phone who who for weeks had kept calling into the call center. And I remember creating a diagram for them just to, you know, try and explain how credit card interest worked. And I remember the basically a really simple um, financial, you know, credit card interest um, 
diagram actually was able to explain that to me. And it was something that, you know, the senior team had been trying to explain to customers and, you know, they'd sat in meeting rooms and created all the pamphlets and all the things. Obviously, there's so much understandable compliance that goes into that. But it was just that, you know, if they'd come down to the front line, they would have been able to see that that was never going to work in terms of they didn't see it from the customer's point of view at all. And I remember going to one of those sort of customer meetings where you get together and hand it over the diagram. And what was a very, um, you know, simple process, they were really shocked by how the simplicity of it had actually changed the whole experience for that customer and got them to understand the credit card interest, basically. And I think what I saw is... um, I think so often customer experience and even customer service gets overcomplicated. And I think sometimes it's the simplicity of things like that, of just actually listening to what customers are telling you and even the frontline staff are telling you that sort of gets you a good understanding of what's actually happening. So I think for me, it's those processes in the back end that you see that have been overcomplicated. Let's talk a little bit about the state of retail and obviously you're in, in Australia and there's, I mean, oh my God, if there's like an, another news clip talking about, you know, death of retail and what have you, but Lush is known for doing well in the landscape. Maybe a good place to start is like when someone says, oh, retail, like what's the state of retail? Like maybe let, let's start there and then yeah, we can kind of dive, dive a little bit deeper. For me, I feel like at the moment, retail in Australia is broken in some aspects I feel like a lot of retailers are desperately trying to catch up with customers' needs and we're not quite there yet. And I think we always look to, um, you know, overseas who are years ahead of us in some aspects and instead we try and copy them and bring their concepts over here instead of creating our own, if that makes sense. I think, you know, you go overseas in America and you see the great service that's there and you don't always get the same service here. And I think for retail that definitely comes back to there is a very old school traditional way of doing retailer and it's about footfall and sales and it basically dehumanizes the customer. And so I feel like we're in a stage where for a lot of retailers with brick and mortar stores, they're playing in a very old school field, which is why retail isn't doing well. And then I've in Australia at least. But then when you see, you know, the pure play online retailers, they are doing really well because they are more focused on the customer. So I think in Australia, you see people like the iconic and in terms of just the service aspects and the experience, how well they're doing there and how much they're investing into their UX and CX. I think um, we're seeing players doing it really well there. But in terms of the brick and mortar space, there's a lot of catching up to do. And I think, you know, customers' expectations are rising and increasing. And I just don't feel like at the moment that we are quite meeting those expectations. So I do feel like it is a bit broken and, you know, you only have to look at the news and the reports and it, it, little, it looks a bit dire. <laughs> it's a bit scary out there. And I think that's just because there's a lack of focus on the customer and a real focus on the bottom line instead. So when you say broken, is it that the the overall motion and focus in the industry is broken because the focus is how many people are coming into this store and then how much are we converting? And that takes up the lion's share of the conversation and the execution focus. Is that is that the, at, at the heart of it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that, you know, all you have to do is look at the back room to see that there's a focus on a numbers game and staff hitting targets and budgets and sales and 
there's not a whole lot of focus on the customer. And I think that's why when you look at other retailers like Apple, who, for example, took out some of those sales numbers and saw that focus go back into the human element, how it changes the game. And I think especially, um, you know, some of the other Australian born and bred retailers are still really stuck in that numbers game. Mm. And, and I suppose it's hard. Like, I mean, I, I sympathize with the leaders who are having to make these decisions because it's like, yes, like let's let's focus more on customer outcomes and understanding that more. Let's, okay, sure, let's dial down the sales numbers, what have you. But then it's like, oh, but 20 of my stores are like completely unprofitable and I'm going to have to close them unless they sell more. So the guys, like you're going to need to sell more. And so it's just like the reality or even behind the scenes, if, you know, private equities come in and then they're trying to, you know, boost up numbers and what have you. It's, it's very hard when then the top focus becomes, you know, numbers. And then so even intuitively when this makes sense, having that come to life, um, you know, it takes really, really strong leadership, which I suppose like brings me to the next question, which is like, you know, who have you seen making this transition to, you know, get away from just have it footfall and sales focused and have it more, you know, centered around the customer and, and, and what they're after? You can tell the retailers that are investing back into their customers just by the way that those online interactions are treated. I think like online has to be valued as well. You have to have that balance of both brick and mortars and that your online presence. And you see those retailers who are really starting to play in that game, respond to the reviews online, talk to their customers um, on social media and have a clear strategy, which you can see through that. You know, things like consistent tone and just a, a nice way of treating their customers. So I think there are definitely brands who are moving towards that. But I think, you know, you can see so many, you know, online retailers who are in that space who I think well, I hope are pushing the others to do a little bit better. And to your point back there, I do think like, obviously you still have to have the numbers and you still have to have the sales and that's so important. And I think the challenge for um, any customer experience manager or people is actually, we need to be able to tie the numbers to the results that customer experience initiatives um, actually achieve. And I think that's how we'll get retailers on our side and move away from that traditional old school sales at any cost sort of focus. Mm, yeah, you almost you're having to champion this cause internally, which um, often means you know having to change ways of doing things that we've always done things this way, or like I've had results executing it like this. Um, so maybe yeah, tell me a little bit about your journey and, and maybe any examples that come to mind where you've had to broker this conversation internally and uh, maybe both you know ideally had good outcomes, but even if even if it has just been challenging and, and maybe still still ongoing in areas? Yeah. Do you know, I think it's really interesting because I think a lot of retailers would struggle with staff costs and just keeping staff on, on the shop floor. And it's a challenge that I've faced, you know, with Lush and managing because, you know, in Australia it does, and New Zealand, it costs a lot of money to keep people on the shop floor. The challenge is for a brand like Lush, you know, you walked into one of our stores, you've probably seen all our pots look exactly the same. Our range is very difficult to shop unless you have the assistance of someone there to help you. And so I guess one of the things I had to really fight for internally is the first thing to cut when you want to make more sales is your staff costs. Um, because it's an easy thing to do. Um, because you know, you you just need to look at that PL and you'll see it, right? And I think for me internally, that was a big challenge because our staff are the biggest advocates for our brand. They're on the shop floor every day. 
and we need them to be able to provide an enormous level of service to our customers to explain the brand and to explain the the cosmetics that we sell. And so I remember sitting in a meeting internally one day (laughs) and um, I remember we needed to cut some costs somewhere. The first initial place went to those staff costs. I remember the meeting was, we'll just cut that. It'll be fine. And it was, it looked like it was about to be that two minute decision that happens and instantly solves the problem. And little old me pipes up. And I remember, you know, you've got to balance the, you know, the commercial aspects with the customer experience. And that can be a challenge because sometimes it seems simple, at least to customer experience. Like if you cut staff, there's going to be an impact to the service or the experience. But what seemed simple, I guess, to me didn't seem simple to the rest of the table. It seemed like the easiest way to make it. And I guess the conversation comes in where um, you have to explain what impact that will have and that it's a short-term gain for potentially you know, a long-term loss of customers. And so the funny thing was, initially, I didn't win that battle. <laughs> so they took the staff off the shop floor, um, made that cut. And what we saw was in a month of that cut happening, we saw complaints rise coming into the contact center. And the reason why that happened is because the staff had become disengaged on the shop floor because there wasn't enough support. So they'd become overwhelmed. And then, of course, you know, switched off. And then attitude complaints flowed in. Yeah, their care factor's not as high and so forth, yeah. Exactly. And I think like that knock-on effect can't always be seen, you know, initially when you make that decision. Um, And so I have a really close relationship with the people in the contact centre being the manager um, previously. And so they came to me and they said, like, this is definitely as a result of that cut to the staff costs. Um, And so what we did is we actually went back to the staff and asked them, like, how are you feeling on the shop floor about the staff cut? And they just, they were really open and honest and told us, like, it is really affecting our ability to do a good job for the customers. Um, And it is having a direct knock-on effect, um, you know, to the service that's provided. And the staff were just really tired. (laughs) Um, But we were able to take that feedback back into, you know, to the senior leadership team and explain what was happening, the complaints that were being generated, and I guess show that real knock-on effect that was happening. Um, And I think it wasn't until they saw that and actually we brought in one of the managers to chat about what was happening, that they understood what the impact of that decision had made to the shop floor. But I guess what had happened had been that classic thing of people making a decision and not listening to the front line and what's going to happen there. Because when I spoke to the manager later on the day, they said, I could have told you if you'd asked me a month ago exactly what would have happened and saved you the time and the stress of doing this. So I think, yeah, one of the challenges is making a decision, you know, and and sometimes we know exactly what will happen, but sometimes a leadership team actually needs to experience that to understand it. Um, And it's not great, but I think it's that thing of even employees making mistakes, sometimes they've got to make a mistake to see the outcome. And I guess it's about what we spoke about before. I was able to show the direct effect of what was that happening through the complaints numbers, through talking to staff, and then present it back and really paint that picture. And I think that's so often where you need to paint that picture for them and present it back and do that stakeholder management. So yeah, I think that's where, you know, one of those costs versus um, experience of customers really came into it. What I like about, um, you know, how you approached it is like, it's a blend of data and story because, you know, sometimes just a, a data point on its own, you know, is, is quite impersonal, like just seeing a chart 
you know, or a number, but then both humanizing it with the stories and then, you know, bringing your store manager and what have you. So what happened? Uh, I'm on the, <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping it's like we flooded the stores with, uh, you know, stuff and everyone's happy and the, dial, the sales doubled and like there was a better commercial outcome. <laughs> so yeah, they, they did put the staff back into stores, which was excellent, but not just that, they actually put the managers in control of the wage costs and of the staff costs. So um, what basically we decided is that they know their stores best and that we are not there every day. And even with all the fancy scheduling systems we have, sometimes, you know, the data gets it wrong. So the managers, they're on the shop floor every single day. They know best how to resource their stores. So, And I suppose they also know like the team dynamics as well. Like when I have this person on shift with this person, like actually they can handle it, even though the, you know, the numbers are only two, but actually they're so great together that they're sort of stronger than three or whatever it may be. Yeah, exactly. And so what we do see is that when they get to make the decision and when they roster the staff, one, they're accountable for the decision. So if they do roster too many staff on and that affects the sales, then they know then how to fix it. They've got to cut hours during the later part of the week. And so I guess we sort of took that, letting that senior team make the mistakes and then applying that to the managers. So what we've seen is that more often than not, the managers accurately resource the stores correctly and it doesn't affect the sales numbers. And what we have seen is that when uh, the floors are accurately staffed um, with the manager's input, that we do have better sales results. So it's pretty straightforward in terms of it makes sense when you think about it. When we think about the old school way of retailing being completely footfall and then sales orientated, and then ideally you're thinking about customer outcomes and then empowering the team to be able to get the right team in place for that. How, how have you gone on that journey of balancing those two? Because there have to be commercial outcomes and it has to make you know sense. We sort of can't have um, you know stores with five people, <laughs> you know, loving customers. And they all work out with a great experience and and and, and it's losing money. So, how, like, how how have you gone on that journey? It's always a challenge balancing both the commercial outcome and the customer experience outcome. And honestly, I think that there are battles that you win and there are battles that you lose and you have to pick and choose which ones to go after, right? At Lush, the challenge has been, um, yeah, there have sometimes had to be really difficult decisions about, you know, things like stores and teams that work in them. But I think, you know, a really easy example of it is something like sales in retail and how I look at it. And um, if you actually look at the best salespeople in the teams and at Lush, it's not that they're looking at the numbers. It's that they just actually understand what customers want and what they need. So, you know, I think there's a difference between people who chase sales and go after sales at any cost versus those true, really great salespeople. And they're just the people who really understand the customers. So a great example of it is um, we have two stores in the same state. And what we saw um, a few months ago is we saw one store, they had amazing sales and they were doing really well. But what we saw is that there were some really aggressive sales tactics happening in there. And as a result of that, customers would actually go to the other store in the state to return the products because the sales tactics had been too aggressive. And the difference was that other store that we saw really has a people and customer focused. Um, And though they don't see the same amount of sales they don't get the same amount of returns. So overall, they're making roughly the same amount. And one of the challenges in the business, again, I think this is really interesting. When I saw that behavior, um, you know, the business 
initial reaction was that store's doing really well, that's fantastic. And, and what I had to actually say, and I think it goes back to that storytelling element, is actually showing the story and what was happening between those stores and creating a competitive landscape. And so I think people's initial reaction is to often look at the sales and when they see good sales, go, that's great, just let it keep going. But I think um, you have to truly understand what it is and then build the right culture, which facilitates great sales that come from really understanding the customer. So I think at Lush, most of our stores do do that. Um, you always have people who really want to make those numbers and that's great. And we don't not like those people, but it's just about how they go there. So I say, I often in the meeting will say to the business, you know, are you making a short-term decision for short-term sales gains or are you making a long-term decision for long-term retention and long-term sales gains? And I think part of our job is to let the business know when they're making the, those types of decisions. So I guess like for us um, at Lush, the challenge is how we move through that maturity cycle of, you know, being really mature in customer experience when we're at the lower scale and how we make sure we don't go back to the start where we're only focusing on the sales. Yeah. So you mentioned that um, CX maturity scale. I'm sort of, I, I can't let that one slip by. I want to understand where did that come from, whether that's something that you you pulled together on your own or, or how, how did you how, how did you work that out? I found the the Tempkin cycle um, and, and used that. But I guess in a business that's just starting, I rejigged it so that it was more lush friendly language. Um, so in our business, having a whole lot of people who, uh, I guess, because we consider ourselves a very disruptive brand, we have people who come from very um, different backgrounds. And I guess some of the customer experience language can be a bit industry specific. So I think when you're talking in a bunch of like professionals who are all doing that type of work, that they understand it and it's inclusive within that group of people. Most of the amount of work that we do as customer experience professionals happens with managing the stakeholders in the business. And I think if you talk in the jargon, then you are at risk of isolating them unless they know exactly what it is. So I think it's really important to take the jargon out of it when you're speaking to the stakeholders and and speak to them in the language that they um, understand and um, are open to because I think you're at risk of um, either becoming the expert in the business and being, you know, in charge of customer experience only. So, yeah, I think you have to demystify it and just spell it out. So, you know, voice of the customer um, sounds great, but when I talk to people about that, they're like, what is that? So I just say, you know, about customer feedback, hearing what customers want from you. So you have to meet people where they're at and talk to people in a language that they understand. And especially in, in my role, when you're talking to store managers who might never have worked in a corporate office before, you've really got to dial down the jargon and make sure that you're talking in really easy language and meeting them where they're at, because that just makes you more relatable. What's really ironic about it is that you've taken the customer experience industry stuff and then actually made it a better customer experience for your internal stakeholders by making it easy to digest and understand to get the outcomes that are customer orientated. So there's a lot of there's a lot of meta meta points there. But let's um let's go on the journey. So uh, you've got this report, you uh, you lushify it, and what did you pull together then? Yeah, so I basically pulled together a presentation which showed the business exactly where we stood in terms of the maturity. Um, and um, I guess, you know, where there's like a tipping point where business finds itself. And what I did is called them stage one and stage two, which uh, the first is you're interested in it. The second is you're going to invest in it. 
And then, you know, those two stages are about the tipping point and where you either continue to move forward um, or you get stuck or you just go back because it's too hard. Um, and so, you know, I pointed out in stage five, which is embedded, so where it's, you know, people are practicing it, they're talking about it, it's flowing through the organization in terms of all of those customer-centric behaviors. I pointed out, you know, I guess those sort of top 20 brands that we look at, you know, like Apple and then talked about like look at the types of behaviors that they demonstrate, look at how their shops flow, look at their staff and talked about that and then said, you know, compare that to us and in organization, we have a mismatch. So we have great service, but not great customer experience overall. And I think that was really surprising to people and not an easy thing to swallow because I think we are a brand that really does care about the service that our customers get, but it's completely different to that experience. And I think the next part of that presentation was actually really clearly spelling out that customer service and the customer service department are not the same as customer experience and that they're two different functions, obviously are closely intertwined, but one is not the same as the other and that we can't get them confused. Um, yeah, so I think that that's really important because you're setting everyone up to know what we're actually doing and where we stand. And I think um, giving people a bit of a shake-up and I think businesses do think we've got great service, so we're fine. It'll continue like that. And I think especially when you work for a brand like Lush, who is known globally to have a really great service, you know, we've won awards and it's fantastic. But if you're not continually pushing to do better, then, you know, you will get left behind. And I think especially now that's even more prevalent, you know, customers have bigger expectations than they ever have before. So having great customer service is not a unique selling point. I love that quote, which is, you know, great service is no longer the standout. Like it's like that is now becoming more and more commoditized. And so therefore have to do more. What is, what is the do more bit? Yeah, I think the do more bit is in terms of like just the decisions that are being made internally and how you're actually looking at the customer and how you're speaking about them and how you're actually going to move forward as a business, putting them in the center of the business. And I think um, for Lush, one of the things that we did is we realized that obviously we have that great service element, but we need to make sure that to move forward as a brand, we really realized that our management staff in our stores weren't happy with the service that we were providing them as a brand. So we made a big decision based off that to get great outcomes for our customers we actually have to look internally. And so a great example of this is we actually lost around 50% of our store managers, some very experienced store managers, um, which is huge for retail because we lost so much of that incredible knowledge. And they're some of the hardest people to hire as well, right? Exactly. And obviously when that happens, you know, it disrupts the store, it disrupts the team. And I think when that happened, what we realized is that we had a problem internally and it was too easy to go, well, they just left us. But when you lose 50% of your staff, you realize that there's a problem. And I think what we, we realized is that we hired these really great people, but we weren't actually trusting them to make the decisions that they felt were right for their business and their stores, which was having an impact on the overall customer experience, not just the service element, because... You know, like, for example, we weren't letting the managers be in control, as I said, of the staff costs or the stock management. So they wouldn't have the right products in store at the right time for customers. You know, the engagement of staff was low in stores. 
Um, and I think as a brand, we had just over-controlled everything and we weren't investing back into that employee experience. So to improve the overall experience of not just the customers, but the brand, we made a really a bit of a, a radical decision, I would say, in some elements, because I think other retailers would be a bit scared. And we actually gave our managers complete control over their stores. So that means the manager does all the product forecasting, the budgeting, the management accounts. They literally are the small business owner of their store and have complete control. So we decentralized control um, and we gave it back to the managers. Um, it's a very hard decision, actually, just even just if you take the personal perspective of people at HQ, because it's like, that's my job. Like, like <laughs> you're going to give it to the front line. They're not an expert. They've never done like project management planning or forecast planning. Like, really? Like, you're going to give it to them? But it's also be like, well, then what do I do? <laughs> what do I do? Exactly. And I think that is a very scary thing. And even for me, like being part of that and understanding that was the solution was still scary because you go, well you know, consistency across retail stores is probably the most important thing when it comes to customer experience. So, you know, if a customer goes into one store and can't get a product that they can get in another, well, then it's not a great experience. And so it's like, well, how do you maintain that consistency across store to store if you let people have complete ownership over their stores and their forecasting and their budgeting? And to be honest, even when we were first talking about it, I had those same sort of thoughts you just sort of talked about. I was like, this is a little bit crazy almost. It feels very, very scary. But what we actually found from that is that, you know, we spend so much time hiring these people, investing and getting the right people in the first place. And then we take all the control from them and it makes no sense. So what we found is that when we gave them back the control, they were a little bit confused at first. (laughs) Um, And I think still now they're still learning. And I think what we've done is that There are obviously experts in our head office who are good at what they do and understand, but we will never truly understand everything that happens in a store because, you know, they are the experts of their store. So a great example of what we saw happen is we released um, 50 bath bombs about six months ago in a full range. And we were really nervous about the forecasting because we were going to let the managers forecast it. What we actually saw is that they all came together and created um, basically like a master forecast based on understanding, you know, their customers, their individual store types. So similar stores would get together and forecast similarly based on the size of their store and their customer needs. And what was really interesting is they actually accurately forecasted and then um, got an amazing result. So our bath bomb category, which had been in decline, is now in growth again. That was a result of them actually accurately picking. So basically they picked a selection of these 50 bath bombs to have in the different stores and they were able to accurately forecast for customer needs. So it was pretty incredible to see that by giving them the power, and obviously they had a little help from you know our teams who do with forecasting, but we let them make the final decision. So they told us what they needed. And by giving them the power back, we saw a really great result. So, you know, that category going from decline to growth is amazing. And that just showed that they truly do understand the customer and the needs of the customer in their store. Do they get together to organize? Like when you mentioned they, so they were communicating together, like as, as teams. So like you said, there's obviously like HQs, folks that are experts in some of this stuff. So like, hey, here's maybe what we recommend or how we think about it. But the, the tweaking and the decision making, you know, was done by them, but were they uh, bouncing around and comparing notes? So like, how did, that, how did that come about? They have like a store manager network of their own through their own social media channels. 
they're going out on their own to actually get a great outcome because they're so personally invested in it. Yeah, and I think we sometimes as retailers underestimate just how much the frontline knows. And so when you give them that empowerment back, they really do go above and beyond to get the right outcomes for their own their own staff in stores and their customers. Um, and I think it makes them really feel like the experts and feel valued because sometimes you do get that. And I think this goes for a lot of retailers. You do get that head office versus stores culture um, that can happen. And I think that happens from decisions being made from the top, which flow down to the bottom, which don't always have a mixture of feedback from customers and frontline employees. And I think by giving them back control and actually listening to them, involving them in the decision-making, as you said before, actually it's their decision. So they're empowered to get those sales because they've done the forecast and they know what their customers want. It completely changes the game. And it also means that we get people who, if they do come to our head office, they're more than just a store manager. They've done the forecasting. They know what a management account looks like. They can run a whole P&L and then can move into our business into a variety of different roles and take the frontline experience with them. And also, like, there's many things that snowball from this, right? Because then now, well, if I'm going to apply for, a, I don't know, a job manager role at Lush versus another cosmetics company or wherever it may be, it's like, well, actually, if I go work at Lush, like, I get to run this like my own business and the skills that I have and the empowerment that I have, like that also attracts, you know, great people um, as well. So I'm sure there's, there's multiple long-term benefits from that bet um, as well. Let's talk sales and sales targets and sales targets versus customer experience. So we've sort of touched on it at different points, but I actually just want to get your thoughts on like, if you had your way and you could wave a magic wand and you were completely in charge, would you remove sales targets? Would you like, would you change them a bit? Like, what's been your journey with sales targets and what's your perspective on it? If it was my choice, I would take the sales targets out. I'd just rip them straight out. And, you know, and I do tell people that within within Lush. I think it makes customers become numbers rather than thinking about customers as humans and creating experiences for them, which then naturally gives you the sale. So, you know, my experience with sales is I worked in financial services in a call center and part of my job was sales. And I was really good at it, but it wasn't because I was trying to get the sales target. It's because I would sell the sell to the customer based off the need and understand their needs. So my thing is if you teach staff how to understand customer needs and empower them to actually understand the customer and what they're looking for and how to create a great experience for them, you naturally will get a sale. And I think I touched on it before the best salespeople in our business, in our stores, it's not that they're salespeople, it's just that they really understand customers. And I go into the stores and I've seen those people in in action. They're storytellers in the sense that they'll tell the customer the story, how our products are made, the ethics and values around it. And they're adding value back to the customer. And when you talk to those people, it's not about, um, oh, I need to upsell them or link to a range. It's about, well, I know that the customer really loves the Twilight body spray. So of course, I'm going to let them know about the complimentary products that go with that because that's just a great experience. Because that's best for the customer and I care about that and I care about them and their their journey. And like, actually, if I do recommend this other thing, then that's actually a good customer outcome. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it's more important to train and teach staff about creating great experiences for customers and how to understand customer need and who's walking in the door. I think that's better than putting a sales target on the door because, 
you know, what we do see is when you put those sales targets on the door, it is going after the number. And I think sometimes the sales at any cost type of behavior, which is often at the customer's detriment or I think a lot of people have been in that situation where you've gone into a store and you feel almost forced to buy something and it's a bit uncomfortable. And I think when you have those types of sales targets and even individual sales targets for sales assistance, it creates that culture of looking out for the money and the sale rather than looking out for the customer. So I think, yeah, you have to actually train people just to look after, you know, people and customers who are coming into store and actually connect with them on a on a human level rather than just trying to sell them something. The hard thing commercially is that, well, gosh, like if we removed all the sales targets, like would we just end up with half our stores unprofitable? And, and sure, that, then they may go well, you know, over the next five years because we've, you know, built amazing loyalty and what have you. But yeah, what's your thoughts on sort of getting commercial outcomes with no sales targets? So when I say sales targets, maybe I should re-clarify. I think you obviously have a, a number that would be good to hit in terms of what's there. So like when you're forecasting, understanding, you know, what's going to make the business profitable. But I think what I think is when you've got a problem is when you're putting um, bonuses and you're making individual team members in a team work towards a number during the day. So I think it would be irresponsible if a manager just completely forgot about the numbers or how to make sure that a store is profitable. So I think that obviously a manager needs to understand what will make a store profitable because that's just good business practice. But I think what it comes down to is I think that if you hire the right people who understand that if you... Because I I guess I really do believe and because I've seen it in action with customer care teams that I've worked with before and even within Lush, that if you really do care about customers and that you hire the right people to start with who are just really great service-orientated people they will just naturally get the sales. And in retail, I think it it probably would be different to some other industries where you need to maybe push those sales in terms of follow-up with clients and be a tiny bit more aggressive. But I think in retail, because it's such a face-to-face interaction, that connection and just making sure you hire the right people. You can't fake the care factor. (laughs) You've got to have a number to make a business profitable. And I think that's just good business sense. But I think making people work towards a number is a mistake. And I think making them work towards great customer experiences and having outcomes for that will naturally get you that number. So I think it's about changing what they're managed on, changing the KPIs, because you'll get the commercial outcome naturally. And and we do see that in stores that have really, as I said, those really great salespeople, they get those outcomes really naturally and even exceed them because they're constantly looking out how to, you know, create better experiences. And and in terms of that, they will tell us when a process is, you know, impeding the customer experience. So have you spoken to any other fellow retailers who have uh, made the bold move of no sales targets? No, I haven't so much. I think it's from a lot of the retailers I've talked to, it's lesser heard of. I think people do think I'm a little mad when I bring it up. And that's okay. I think I respect that other people want to do things differently and, and do have to balance them. And again, it goes back to what we were speaking about before. Um, I think the most important element and what is still a difficult thing to do is tie into how customer experience and creating good experiences ties into the commercial and bottom line. Because sometimes it's very difficult to say this store is succeeding because of the experience that they're creating. So I think that is definitely one of the things that until we can really prove that connection, 
that it, it does make it really difficult for businesses to move towards that type of, you know, no sales. So, you know, I think the new technologies that are coming through where retailers are able to get that single view of the customer will be amazing um, because that will help us link to um, the bottom line and get customer experience initiatives up and running. Because I feel the real block for retailers is the fact that it's very difficult to show the commercial benefits of customer experience without that clear benefit to the commercial aspects. And that's the challenge for retailers actually getting a single view of the customers that are coming into their store. Are we retaining customers? Are we just getting new ones and churning is still a challenge. What's the lifetime value of that customer? So maybe we did the right customer outcome um, related behaviors and they only had a $15 spend with us today. But oh my gosh, look at that customer over two years, they've spent you know three grand with us versus hey, similar sort of cohort, we made the $50 sale, but then they never came back again or they only spent another $100 with us. I have worked for a pure play online retailer before and it was easier to show those um, customer experience outcomes because you had the single view of the customer. You could see how much they were spending and you could really nicely tie it back. So that's why I do think we see more um, pure play retailers able to have those better customer experiences and I think that's why we're starting to see more customer experience managers there because it's really easy when you have the single view of the customer to show the outcome and link it through. But doing that in a retail environment and Lush has e-commerce stores and retail linking everyone together is still a challenge. So I think once there's even more technology, which will help us link all that together and the technology is more accessible for retailers, then we'll start to see potential um, better outcomes in terms of getting more customer experience initiatives off the ground. So recently, Lush was awarded with Innovative CX Retailer of the Year and how you used uh, customer insights and employee feedback. Love to hear a little bit about um, that particular, I suppose, award and recognition and the journey that you went on there. In terms of that, I think it's sort of like our whole customer experience strategy just in general is around really just connecting with people. So if I was going to tell you what our you know, strategy looked like, I would say just like our products, it's a handmade human strategy. And the reason we do that is because I think customer experience strategies do get overcomplicated, you know, journey mapping, you know, they just seem so big and so vast that it's really impossible to know where to start and what to do. And so I say um, Lush's um, strategy is really around um, not overcomplicating it and just going after the low-hanging fruit first. And in terms of where we are as a business and where we sit in terms of maturity, that is the best things that we could do. So I would say they're not the sexy things that people really like to do um, because they're the boring things that you sort of have to do but make better experience overall. So I think the the example that I always like to use um, and which was part of one of the reasons we won that award is because of just going back to basics and um, you know, three years ago, our customer care department was very under-resourced. It only had two people who worked in it. Um, and our digital online e-commerce business really suffered as a result. And I think that's because we just hadn't realized how impactful um, a customer care department can be in terms of what that does to a customer's online experience. Um, and it really isn't the fun project that people want to work on. And so a good example of it is I like to call it, it was like the under the stairs department, the department that um, people know is a problem but don't really want to fix it so they lock it away. Um, 
So, you know, it was a department that used to work on Outlook um, and used to ignore social media. So um, there would be three months worth of, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram comments just left. And I guess we looked like very barren in terms of our engagement with customers and the landscape that was there. And we had such an investment in our stores, but yet no investment into that customer care part, which was really um, a direct contradiction of what our brand values in terms of our service offering to customers. And so what we did is we just went back to basics and we implemented things that just need to be in there. So that was things like giving that team the infrastructure to be able to handle all those customers on all those different channels. So, you know, like a proper email system, proper social media management, And then, of course, hiring the right people into that team. So it had been a team where it was literally like anyone can do customer care, right? That's um, But anyone can do it. So it was like, you know, people who um, shouldn't have been talking to customers were on the phone because that was how it was treated. So, you know, I guess the really interesting thing was, you know, investing back into that hiring the right people. So we implemented a whole new hiring system for that department, which made sure we got the best people. And I think another thing is, you know, I spoke about how we empower our stores, but our customer care department now, like they have the autonomy to do whatever they want. The only the only KPI that they're held to is that the customer must be happy after the interaction. So that's their only KPI. There's no um, adherence to schedule. There's no um, call times that they have to stick to. What we actually found is when you treat people in a customer care department like humans, and it shouldn't, it, it shouldn't be a surprise, and when you treat them like adults and give them the autonomy to refund a customer if they feel it's right to send out a care package or just to surprise and delight them and do something nice for them, that not only do they get great outcomes for customers, but also at the moment our contact centre responds to customers within 24 hours, you know, they get things done and we still have a very large amount of contacts that come through there. But I think a great customer experience is sometimes stopping them from contacting you in the first place. So we work a lot on contact mitigation. So if we see that different customers have contacted us like 50 times about the same thing, we have a system that we built internally that alerts us so that we can instantly set up a new process on our website to make sure we mitigate that contact. So that was really one of the main parts of the innovation that really helped us win that award because it was a real big investment into that digital business and making sure that the customers who are coming through there got the best experience possible. And as I said, it wasn't the sexiest thing to work on, but as a result, we now have, you know, customer care agents who've worked with us for over a year, which again is a not always heard of in the industry. Generally, agents will churn and burn pretty quickly within six months. But we have an amazing group of people who really care for the customers who go above and beyond for them every day and love to work for Lush because we offer an environment where they are adults who get to work and get the best outcomes for the customer. But not just that, we've moved them all throughout our business to then advocate for customers in different areas. So an example of that is one of the agents who worked for us now works in the UK in the customer care team and has changed the way that they operate there. Another one of our agents now works in our people support or HR department and again has helped implement, you know, how hiring great employees gets great customer outcomes. So we've had a really great knock-on and a flow-on effect from just investing in, you know, in one area of our customer experience, which was really affecting everything overall. And what we've seen from that is the digital part of our business is now the fastest growing um, 
which is incredible, but it took a little bit of investment. And again, something that's not very exciting or fun. And so I think that was part of the the largest part of that award. But also what we found through building that real-time reporting system is how we actually listen to customer feedback and employee feedback and build out customer insights from there. Doing all of this well, um, part of the lifeblood is the the customer feedback element and then the employee feedback on that journey. And then you've got a, an opinion on MPS feedback, which I'm super intrigued to hear. So yes. So yeah, look, I think in some circles, I have quite a controversial opinion on terms of NPS and customer data. So we don't use NPS um, at Lush. And sometimes I get people gasping like when I tell them, but I think it's just important. Like I don't say never use it because it can definitely be effectively used in other organizations. I think what I've seen, and especially when I've talked to people is there is a lot of chasing to improve that score. And also I've had personal experience being on the front line where that's been used as a KPI, you know, as a KPI of performance. And what I often see happen with NPS is that people get all the results of it sit there in a meeting room, talk about it forever and then never do anything with it, um, but then continue to use it as a measure for, you know, contact centres, for example, or experiences in store. And, you know, I think it puts a lot of onus on one, the customer to do the work for you, to tell your brand, you know, what's happening. And I think it does, it does generate some complacency because I think, um, you know, you see people chasing for it and wanting to get it And I think people often use it when things aren't doing well in the hopes that it will tell them something. But quite most often is that the people on your front line can already see what the issues are. And even sometimes, you know, the people who work on the leadership teams or in your middle management already know as well. But it's just that no one is willing to actually put the work in to get it done. So what you often find, and I've sat in meetings when I was an agent, you know, you'd get the NPS findings, people would sit in this room and then try and come up with a plan to fix it. But of course, people have their own agendas, they have their own project. And so then by the time that that gets off the ground, sometimes it's too late and it's no longer relevant or just nothing ever gets done with it in the first place. So I think... um, I think if you're going to do it, you have a really good structure and it has to be done for the right reasons and used in in a suite of metrics to tell a full story. And I think, um, you know, if you're just starting off in customer experience, I think there are other avenues which are going to be more beneficial for you to help you tell the story. As you move through that cycle and you want to add more and you want to link back to the numbers and tell a better story, then yes, you can add it in with the right parameters. Yeah, I think it's just important to use it in the right way because when it's used um, incorrectly, um, especially, you know, I think a really interesting thing about this, and I've seen it done before, where a survey came through from a customer um, and they didn't like how loud the music was and they didn't like the type of music that was on the phones. And so they they made a quick action, which was great because um, action's the most important element of it. But because the data set was so small, it was the wrong action. So it isolated the rest of the customer base. And I think if people see, for example, the verbatim feedback, they sometimes pick and choose off a very small data set thinking that's representative of the customer and then don't get the right action. And, you know, talking to not just people in retail, but other industries is that less and less people are filling out NPS surveys. Well, I know I as a customer, I'm really tired of getting them. And I don't want to fill another one out. And to be honest, if I filled one out and told you what's wrong and you haven't fixed it, then 
I don't really trust you as a brand anymore. So I think it's really important. Um, you know, if you do do it, then everyone in the leadership team has to make a commitment that they'll take action on it and that it won't just be another metric used as a vanity metric to say, look at our 90 plus NPS where all your customers and your frontline staff are telling you a very different story. If you were to wave a magic wand, like what, what, what do you think is the idea? I mean, maybe where are you in that journey as well? And then sort of what, what, would be, what would be ideal? You know, I'm a really, really, really big believer in capturing the frontline feedback. Um, and that's something that we're working on at Lush in order to develop a way to capture the feedback, not about how employees are feeling in regards to their engagement, but to get those things. So like when I go out and do a store visit, the manager and the, you know, the people or our casuals who only spend three hours will tell me all the things that customers have told them, what they want changing. So I guess what we see is we see how valuable that feedback is because when we get it in large amounts, we do see that it all generally matches and we start making the right changes based on that. But I guess what we're trying to do is we're trying to come up with a way of how we can capture that and then use that feedback to make those decisions. Because at the moment, we do get it and we find that that is the feedback that's most beneficial and helps us find, I guess, the low-hanging fruit which we can fix and then move on to other things and also then go through those maturity stages. So in, in my ideal book, like it's about finding mixed ways of getting that customer feedback without always relying on the customer to do the work for you. And, you know, I think there are some amazing things coming out in terms of technology and what's happening with customer data. And yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting. And I think as we go throughout the years, I'm sure that more will come and it'll be easier. But I think, you know, I think there is something to be said for just a retailer going out and talking to their, you know, their employees on the short floor and also talking to your customers. The other day, I jumped on the phone to the contact center and I had a couple of customers call and they were saying that they couldn't find... Um, how long it would take to dispatch an order. And then I, I looked on the website and I found, yeah, I can't find how long it takes to dispatch. So then we just changed that. But I think like that's the type of stuff which you just don't know until you either talk to the customer or talk to the staff. So yeah, I think that's in my ideal world, it would be harnessing that and using that really effectively. And also I would say my advice, especially to retailers is your frontline is so powerful. So go work on a shop floor, interact with them, interact with the customers and really get that feeling of what the life of your employee is like and what, you know, how your customer feels and interacts on the shop floor because there is so much to be learned from that. And we are in a world with a lot of data and there is a lot of opportunity. But I think, you know, if data told us the full story and everyone acted perfectly as to the data, then retailers wouldn't be in some of the trouble that we are in terms of, you know, there's a vast amount of customer data out there, demographic information and targeting, but we know that people are irrational and emotional and don't act in the way. So I think there is something to be said to just don't overcomplicate a customer experience strategy, bring it back. I love your comments around like simplicity back to basics, um, you know, which is great. Like I want to, I want to finish on how you are booting yourself up and how you've been on the ride to just, you know, figure out this world of customer experience. Right. Um, and you know, what I've been impressed with in this conversation is how you've just pulled things together yourself, right? Like go out and figure out something online and oh, that looks like a good blog post and oh, like I'll customize that for us. And like I'll run an internal campaign around that and sure I'll get some data around like returns 
you know, volumes, you know, the store that was selling well versus the one that wasn't, but then also empathetically jumping on calls and bringing, you know, managers in and sort of pulling it all together. And sort of feels like um, the way that you're pulling it together and you may feel behind the scenes that it's sort of held together with sticky tape or what have you, but it actually doesn't like, it, it, like you said, like it's, it's sort of back to the basics and simplify, but clearly you've had to sort of go on that journey of, okay, like I'm now a customer experience professional, like where the hell do I go to <laughs> figure all this stuff out and who do I talk to and what do I read and what have you. It'd be good to just hear about your personal journey um, booting up as a CX pro and what have you found helpful? It is hard because I think initially I would look for like courses or training to understand more about customer experience and they're just not there. And so I think a lot of it is... Um, talking to other people in the industry. And I was very lucky to find an online forum, um, which is called CX Accelerator. And it is just an amazing bunch of CX professionals from all over the world who come onto a Slack channel to talk about all the challenges. And I think that's probably been one of the most beneficial things for me is just being able to talk to other people and see the challenges and actually realize that Sometimes I think, um, well, at least for me, and I know talking to other people that this can feel the same, it can feel very lonely doing this work because sometimes it can feel like we can see what, um, you know, everyone in the business needs to do um, to get that great outcome. But sometimes it doesn't feel like everyone's on the journey with you or it's like, you know, you go forwards only to go backwards. So I think it's tapping into those other people and feeling like, you're not alone and being able to share the successes because there are successes um, and also the challenges and bounce off other more experienced people. So I think on my journey, I found that really beneficial, but just, you know, I think now we've got so many resources. So I listen to podcasts, I read books. And what have been some of your favorite actually, like if you were to list, so uh, hi, I'm Michael and I'm now, I don't know, customer experience manager at XYZ company first, you know, first time, you know, I'm passionate about this stuff. I've come from service. Like I care about this, like, Hey Emma, how do, <laughs> what do you recommend that I should read and listen to and like check out to start skilling up? What would you recommend? Well, I always say, um, so Jane Bliss is my idol. I absolutely adore her. So I always recommend people go there. Um, first read her books, watch her on YouTube. She's just inspirational. Um, at least for me, because I feel like she's a real pioneer. So yeah, so I would always recommend people go there, but I really recommend that people just get curious about just everything in business, because I feel like you have to talk to so many different stakeholders. You have to understand so many different pressures that you really just need to really expand your knowledge, learn everything. And I think if I've learned anything, I would highly recommend that you learn about change management. Go on a course and learn the basics of change management because the work that we do is actually change management. So if you know the fundamentals, then you know how to get people. And then if there's one book that I would recommend people would read, it's called The Power of Habit because that's how organizational change happens is through habit and routine. And if you want to change people's habits, you need to know the science behind it. So I would recommend that people read that because that has really changed the way that I interact within the business and because I look for habits and routines and then I look for ways to change them. So 
I'd really just say people just need to get curious because the more curious you become about things, the more questions you ask and the more you begin to understand. Because I think um, customer experience is also about, you know, really great stakeholder management, I think being a really core part of it. And I think being able to provide great service to them and understand the challenges of their roles and the things that they're facing, it really helps you have more empathy and become better at working with them and then getting the outcomes you all need. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And that's really good. And then in terms of actual CX industry and the vernacular and, you know, maybe some of the, the things that can be helpful, what, what have you found? Um, what have you found to be good resources? Again, it's really hard because I just really lean into <laughs> the internet. Um, so you sort of pieced it together, yeah, by... Yeah, reading, listening, blogs. And I think, you know, that goes... And, and doing as well, doing... So I think it's about, um, you know... It, yeah, it's it's really hard because I guess my mind is a collection of resources. So I see how everything connects back to each other. I would say like the one thing I've found really beneficial, which I would recommend is when you find those good resources, keep them. I've got a whole um, like spreadsheet of, um, you know, tabs of resources that I have. And um, so I just put in like links to all the articles I read or, you know, things that I've seen on LinkedIn. I think it's really good to find a mixture of, uh, I guess, CX professionals. There are some who are more operational based, some who are more people based, and then some who focus on voice of the customer. So I think it's about finding your niche and realizing you can't do it all. So I would say if I described what my element of CX would be, I say I would say I'm an operational customer experience type of niche. That's interesting. I haven't heard the three. Yeah. So like one is like a, an ops one, one's a people based one, and maybe one's more, I suppose, um, I suppose like the systems and the VOC side of things. I don't know, maybe there's another one, which is sort of like, I suppose it's the operational one, which, which is sort of like the, the service blueprint change type stuff that needs to happen behind the scenes to get the out, like to get the outcomes as opposed to, you know, 100% people, which people need to deliver on that. But that makes sense. I suppose that's where you're going to probably get your biggest impact actually. Well, I think it's about just knowing, um, you know, I think for someone who's trying to navigate what it is and what the industry is, it's knowing like the more you know, the less you know. And I think that's what I've discovered through this process is that just find your niche and do that really well because you can't do everything in this space well. And then talk to the people who do that really well in their particular space. So reach out to people who are really great at voice of the customer, learn from them, understand who you know, the right people are to work with to get the best outcomes because you're not going to be great at everything because this is such a multifaceted role. Yeah. Emma, thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a blast learning about the Lush story and congratulations on the win. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is produced by Rated, the market leader in gathering in the moment customer feedback. If you'd like more information, head over to the website, rateitapp.com, R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P.com. If you've got any feedback or ideas for the show, I'd love to hear from you. I read and respond to every single message I get. You can find me on LinkedIn. Just search for my name, Michael Momsen, M-O-M-S-E-N. And if you love this episode, it'd be fantastic if you could subscribe. You can do that in your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, leave a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Michael Momsen. Look forward to speaking to you next time.